Welcome to Winston and Strawn's Let's Talk Lending podcast. My name is Eric Johnson. I'm a partner in the Houston office of Winston and focus my practice on mergers and acquisitions, capital markets transactions, and ESG and energy transition related matters. I am also co-chair of Winston's worldwide ESG advisory team. Delighted to be joined today by my partner, Mike Blankenship, who's also a partner in the Houston office and focuses his practice on corporate finance, mergers and acquisitions, private equity, SPAC offerings, and security law matters generally. And he is my co-chair on the ESG advisory team. Today, Mike and I will be discussing ESG and the exploding area of sustainable finance and more specifically climate and environmental related opportunities in sustainable finance. And of course, as we practice in Houston, we'll have a little bit of a focus on the energy industry specifically. So Mike, with that, why don't, before we dive into the details, why don't you give just a quick recap of Winston's ESG advisory team and what we're all about? Sure, our ESG practice includes multidisciplinary lawyers who routinely advise funds, investment advisors, public companies, boards, management teams, and other personnel that make decisions over ESG-related legal and business issues and risk. Our ESG advice includes, but is not limited to, determine whether a board and management should incorporate ESG values and goals into the business and culture. We consider executive fiduciary duties and balance ESG impacts and requirements. We advise on voluntary, mandatory, and developing standards and their relevance as that is becoming more important with the SEC and other regulatory agencies looking at ESG and the disclosures. We help with assessing materiality, which is a key factor for many companies when they're looking to determine what it means to be a sustainable company. And finally, we develop and implement robust plans on diligence and ongoing compliance processes. So with that, I'll turn it over to you, Eric. Talked about a little bit on the ESG trends for last year and this year. Yeah, so it's interesting, Mike. You know, you and I wrote an article back in the spring of 2020. I think there were a lot of people that were concerned that the pandemic would slow down the advancement of kind of some of the ESG trends and initiatives that were going on out there. But I think we were pretty clear in that article that you and I thought it would actually be an accelerant that the COVID pandemic, specifically in the S bucket and the G buckets, would be an accelerant and certainly help out in the E bucket. And, and as I look back over the last 18 months, that has certainly been the case. I think things have taken off uh, much as we predicted. We probably should have gone to Vegas after we wrote that article. As we think about ESG trends and the bigger picture, and it's specifically kind of with the, you know, you and I coming from the energy space, looking at it with an energy kind of lens on, you know, initially started out kind of as a PR issue. And in many respects, the response of most, most of our corporate clients was to handle it as a public relations issue. Then in the last few years, and you'll talk a little bit more about this in a second, but it, it did largely become an investor relations issue. There were a lot of concerns around how the energy space was performing and specifically how ESG issues were impacting that. And we spent a lot of time dealing with investors talking about ESG, both the environmental, the social, and the governance issues and dealing with those things. And I think most lately, what we've really seen is, is a real explosion of a customer relations issue. And I think this goes directly into the lending. It goes directly into capital expenditures and the need for financing to grow businesses. But from a customer relation issue, I know I have so many clients personally 
who many of their strategic decisions are now driven by customer demands. If you think about an oil field services company, for example, whose biggest and, and best clients are the upstream EMP companies who have made numerous net zero commitments by 2050, they are aggressively looking at their vendors to provide products, to provide services that are ESG friendly, that are focused on a low carbon future. And so as we think about investor relations and we think about customer relations and what's driving the need for capital, much of it is, all right, how are we going to transition into a low carbon economy? How can we build out products and services that address those issues and keep our customers happy and our investors happy? And of course, that requires a lot of capital and something we'll dive into a little bit more as, as we go through the podcast. With that in mind, Mike, I want you to t take a minute and let's just expand on the whole capital flight issue. I mean, we come from traditional energy, although we now do renewables and other things, but there was a big capital flight, a big capital exodus, largely driven by ESG issues in many respects. Yeah, that's right, Eric. We've seen in the last five years, Bloomberg put out a report where conventional energy funds dropped from $46.7 billion in 2015 to, to just $8.3 billion last year. And, but the five-year period for renewable funds actually grew from $21.4 billion to up to $52.2 billion in 2020. And they also estimate that 47% investors plan to significantly increase their ESG investments. And the reason for this is the data has shown that 16 out of 27 ESG exchange-traded funds have outperformed the S&P 500 by quite a significant margin, up to 29%. That means that there's more lending out there for ESG-related projects. It means there's more dollars shifting from the traditional oil and gas into these energy transition projects. And we've seen it, Eric and I have seen it, with carbon sequestration deals, with other types of clean energy deals out there where money has shifted to an ESG focus. And we're starting to see a lot of lending in that regard as well. In particular, banks are looking at that, and, you know, Eric, I know you've talked about this before and had some statistics around it, but, you know, the bulge bracket banks are, are really shifting into the ESG front as it relates to lending. What are you seeing and hearing on the street? Yeah, I, I think to build on top of what you just described, and when we talk about bank commitments, the numbers are really rather astounding. And so if, if you think just back over the last several months, and you talk about the bulge brackets, you talk about JP Morgan, B of A, Citi, Goldman, and others, you're seeing gigantic trillion dollar commitments. Uh, JP Morgan, for example, 2.5 trillion committed over the next 10 years to kind of sustainable finance opportunities. B of A, 1.5 trillion by 2030. Citi, 1 trillion by 2030. Goldman Sachs, 750 billion by 2030. But to your point, it's not just the bulge brackets. It's not just the biggest banks. Even the, the some of the smaller banks, the regional banks, banks that are much more just traditional commercial lenders are also making big commitments. Uh, I think PNC Bank just in the last week or so committed $20 billion to what they call environmental finance or what you and I might call sustainable finance. And that's on top of another $88 billion that they had already committed to kind of some of their social lending programs. So not only are customers demanding that things be done in the sustainable space and circular economy space, and that's driving the need for capital, uh, but you're also seeing banks, the lenders, and the debt investors making significant commitments to participating in that space. And so 
to the extent you're out there as a borrower and you're looking for opportunities, the banks have committed trillions and trillions of dollars over the next five and 10 years. And so you have lenders that are aggressively seeking you out for an opportunity to lend to you in the space. And so as we think about those commitments, you know, what are they looking to lend to? You know, these key areas really are around climate solutions, whether that be renewable energy and clean technologies. You know, you might see things about around sustainable and clean transportation, think electric vehicles, but it's all geared towards this acceleration to this sustainable low carbon economy and focusing on all those ESG issues. So even in the S bucket, you'll see opportunities for lending around socioeconomic development, uh, economic inclusion, home lending and affordable housing, education and healthcare. So to the extent you are a potential borrower, a company that's looking for capital in those types of spaces, trust me, there are trillions of dollars looking to be loaned to you. So Mike, let's, we don't have all the time uh, to dive into everything sustainable finance, but why don't you give us a quick sustainable finance 101? What, what are the big products out there? What do they look like and kind of what, what drives them? Sure, yeah. So the first product that we see and, and work on are called green bonds. These are bonds used to fund projects that have positive environmental and climate benefits. You can refer to these as use of proceed bonds, where funds are earmarked for specific projects. When you think about the projects, think renewables, energy efficiency, pollution prevention and control, clean transportation, green buildings, carbon sequestration, et cetera. What are the principal green bond principles that are needed to be followed? Well, these are voluntary frameworks that lay out the best practice for green bond offerings. Some of the bulge bracket banks will also put out their framework as it relates. But the goal is to enable all debt market participants to speak the same language to promote growth in the green space. The next products are sustainability-linked loans as well as sustainability-linked bonds. These are alternative green bonds, and they're not specifically tied to uh, the use of proceeds. There's nothing specifically identified, but there is a framework around it. So for these type of issuers, green projects may not be available, but they are committed to sustainability in a low-carbon future. They set sustainability goals, and interest rates and other features of the debt can vary depending on whether or not the issuer achieves the goals. We see that if the issuer does achieve the goals, that they'll often get lower rates. You know, we'll go down 100 basis points, some number of uh, noticeable amount because they're falling within the framework they set out. Sustainable finance is a big issue for public companies. And when the SEC put out its Pending new disclosures, what are, what are you seeing there uh, within the SEC uh, for public companies? Yeah, so as everybody probably knows, in late July, SEC Chairman Gensler delivered some remarks and basically has directed the SEC staff to develop mandatory climate risk disclosure rules for public companies by the end of the year. And this is going to be, in, in my personal opinion, it's going to be a huge further accelerant for the sustainable finance area. One of the things that everybody has been focused on is we need disclosures, we need data points that are consistent, that they are comparable. They're very specific, they're measurable. We can look at them and get reliable, consistent data that we can compare between borrowers and issuers, right? 
And, and I think there's been so much that's been done on that front, just kind of from a voluntary basis with the activists, with companies, with organizations like SASB and otherwise pushing on all these fronts. But I think the SEC finally raised its hand and said, okay, we appreciate all the hard work, but we are now going to come together and we're going to propose some rules and talk about some very specific, both quantitative and qualitative disclosures around environmental issues. And so I, I've always said uh, when people have asked over the last year or two, when did I think we would actually have public company SEC disclosure in 10Ks and proxy statements around climate issues? I'd always said for the large caps that would likely be 2024, 2025, something like that. Uh, but now with Chairman Ginsler's remarks, I, I think we're going to see an acceleration of that. I, I think if we have proposed rules by the end of the year, we go through the standard comment process and some back and forth and some tweaks. It's very possible that by the end of 22, we have some rules that make sense, that are consistent, comparable, and can work, and that that'll actually be out there for some of the large caps by 2023 or 24. Okay, so a little bit quicker timetable than I'd originally anticipated. But in that sustainable finance space, what a great tool to continue to promote growth in that space. I, I think, you know, you talked a little bit earlier, Mike, about the green bond principles and these frameworks that are out there that are all designed to promote transparency, to promote best practices. Well, if we also now, at least in the public company space, have a defined set of specific type of disclosures, whether that's reduction in greenhouse gas emissions or otherwise, we now have some comparable data that a lot of borrowers are working from, and that'll also help uh, accelerate things in the private company space as well. So I think we have a lot of things going on that will continue to kind of feed this acceleration and certainly the SEC's new disclosures and their willingness to step into the ring and become a part of this fight, I think will be a part of that acceleration. With all of that, Mike, any final thoughts from you on sustainable finance, where we're headed and, and how big it's going to be? Yeah, it's certainly going to be, as you said earlier, in the trillions. And, uh, you know, you're going to continue to see dollars and, and projects that will be put to good use in the green space where you're helping from a climate perspective. And we think that, at least I think that these loans that are at the lower rates are going to be encouraging because companies will need that help at the early part of it to help. The, the environment, whether it's green bonds for use of proceeds or sustainability linked loans or a sustainability linked bond, the issuer needs to choose the right product and they need to be somewhat sizable. But with that said, you know, always happy to discuss any point. So with that, yeah, I'll, uh, and, yeah. one thing I would add is our finance practice here at Winston is integrated directly into our ESG practice here. We work hand in hand all the time. The sustainable finance opportunity, and I like to use the word opportunity, the sustainable finance opportunity for our clients, both on the borrower side and the lender side are gigantic. Like I said, we work together with them day over day on these types of projects representing both borrowers and lenders. And so I would encourage you, if you're listening to this podcast and you're curious about ways that you might access capital, capital in, in a, through sustainable finance and maybe even find a cheaper cost of capital that way, I would encourage you to reach out to your primary Winston contact, or if you want to, do not ever hesitate to reach out to me or Mike directly. With all of that, Mike, thanks for joining me today. And thank you to all of you who are listening to the Let's Talk Lending podcast here at Winston & Strong. 
You can subscribe to the podcast via Apple, iTunes, or Google, or by visiting the Winston and Strong website for more insights on Let's Talk Lending type issues in our finance practice area. So thank you again for joining us and talk to you soon.